1: Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Indoor Air Quality Radio is broadcast from coast to coast and around the world over the internet. Today's broadcast is episode number 170, and today is Friday, June 4th, 2010. My name is Cliff Slotnick, or the Z-Man, Radio Joe uses in the studio, and we have Intrepid Environmental and Koalecki at the controls. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with today's guest Bob Baker, an ASHRAE fellow and past president of the Indoor Air Quality Association on his recent experiences in Nashville, Tennessee, remediating uh, personal property following the recent devastating flood that occurred there. We're also going to have an update on the Florida mold licensing law, an update on ASHRAE standards and activities, and much, much more. We'll also have, as usual, some comment by Dr. Dieter Weil in the Roundup. Radio Joe and I, along with Environmental Annie and the Wingman's Help, have been working on the IAQradio.com website. We add to the website and blog each week after the show. We've also changed the invitation and news announcement from IAQ Radio and the IAQ Training Institute, and we hope that you like the improved look, and improve functionality. Now we'd like to thank our sponsors.
2: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com.
1: DryEase products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at
2: dri-eaz.com. John Don Products. We're a restoration and abatement contractors shop at com,
1: And our new marquee sponsor, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management, who provide management best practices and in-depth cleaning solutions to help keep readers ahead of the curve and successful in their daily operations. Visit them at www.cleanfacts.com and www.cmmonline.com for more information on these invaluable resources and to subscribe. Be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services.
2: Okay, to contact the show, you can either call us at 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. Of course, you can download the show from our website, iaqradio.com. You can follow the link that says go to the show Uh, for downloads. You can also get your downloads from iTunes, and of course, you can just stream it right from our homepage on the website. Don't forget, we also have ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it back over to the Z-Man for today's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe.
1: Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to Cliff Z at ProRestore Products. If you want, you can also text it in during the show. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, June 4th, 2010. The subject matter for today's trivia question comes from the field of geographical history. According to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, on what date did the Cumberland River in Nashville, Tennessee reach 56.2 feet at the Nashville gauge? This is the highest recorded flood water in the city. Back to you, Joe.
2: All right. Thank you, Cliff. Today's guest, Robert G. Baker, is a fellow at the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers bob is also the uh, owner of bbg bbj environmental solutions they manufacture and distribute a range of products for indoor contamination control and maintenance of hvac systems bob is considered an authority on infection control heating ventilation and air conditioning systems maintenance and related indoor environmental issues mr baker is past president of the indoor air quality association a fellow of the American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers, a member of its Standards Committee and several technical committees, as well as an ASHRAE Distinguished Lecturer. Bob has over 30 years of experience in all facets of building operation and maintenance and is a certified operations and performance management professional. That's a somewhat new designation through uh, ASHRAE. And um, Bob is also an undergraduate from Oklahoma State University and got his MBA through the Gulf Oil Program at Harvard University. He's been a guest here before on IAQ Radio, and we welcome him back. We've got some, uh, we've got some intro music for Bob. <music> All right. Let's see if we got Bob on the phone. Hello, Bob. Hello, Bob.
3: Hello, Joe. You, I'm here. Do we, you
2: hear me? We got you. Thank you, Bob. And thanks for joining us again today. Uh, it's always a pleasure. I, I enjoyed talking to you yesterday, and looking forward to today's interview.
1: Bob and Heidi Cliff too.
2: Hey, Joe. Uh, Bob, right.
1: always a pleasure. All right,
2: Bob. Um, many of our listeners know but I'll, I'll repeat you're you're located in tampa tampa florida there and um just curious uh what are your thoughts on the bp disaster that uh, is taking place in your neck of the woods right now
3: well in a word joe disgusted uh i lived in houston for 20 years and i'll remember forever as my children were growing up every time we'd go down to galveston to the beach we'd come back and the first thing we'd have to do is get out the solvent and clean all the tar off their feet and their clothing. And uh, it just horrifies me that we may see that same situation in the pristine beaches of Florida. Uh, As we've been told, uh, in the Tampa area, we have less to worry about because apparently the way the currents in the Gulf work, the oil slick's going to hit the panhandle, but probably will be carried around the tip of Florida and into the east coast. So actually they expect the fouling of the beaches to be much worse on the east coast than it is on the west coast. But it's a a national disaster of unparalleled proportion, and it's just a crying shame.
2: You know, Bob, when we were talking, I think one of the other uh – issues and problems with this BP uh, issue being on the front page is that there have been other really important events occurring that may not have gotten the type of coverage they would have gotten, and that's why we're, we're doing this show today. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how the flooding occurred in Nashville, what happened down there, what, what river flooded, and then how you got involved?
3: Yeah, basically what happened, Joe, on May 1st through the 3rd, There was a storm system that essentially stalled over Nashville and about four surrounding counties. Uh, The Cumberland River, which originates up in Hardin County, Kentucky, flows through Nashville and then goes back into Kentucky and finally empties into the Ohio River up in Kentucky. And there was just a torrential rain that persisted for those three days-plus days plus and uh, it was just one of those freak things of nature that could never be predicted, but it brought down a huge amount of water, and it was way beyond the capacity of the river to carry it away because it flows through a lot of, of valleys and things, and it just exceeded its capacity. And so the waters rose to a level that nobody had ever, in their wildest fantasies, dreamed was possible. I was sitting in a place in, in downtown Nashville and looking. I could see down to the river after this was over on the 9th of May, and it had to be 60 feet, not down the bank, but actually 60 feet in height from where I was sitting to where the water was, and I would have been underwater where I was sitting. It was just incredible how high that water got. Uh, and and that the real disaster of it was that since nobody had ever anticipated the possibility of that kind of a flood, very, very few of the people that were impacted had any kind of flood insurance or any kind of rising water insurance. It was a eventuality that just wasn't within uh, possibility and, until it happened. Now, Cliff had the
2: um, trivia question, and, and Cliff, I think we got a correct answer We did. We, we yeah. got a correct answer, so yeah, we, can, we, we can let people know that – what was the uh, – It was actually
1: New Year's Day, 1927, 56, 56 feet.
2: 56 feet. Do we know how high it was this time, Bob? You, you were obviously about 60 feet was a pretty good estimate because
1: uh, the, the – I,
3: I don't fixed. really know the official height.
1: Okay. Well, again, this was measured uh, – you know, they have a mark, they have a, a gauge. Somewhere the Army Corps of Engineers has a gauge someplace, and it was measured on that gauge at that fifty-six point two feet, nineteen twenty-seven. I checked the Army Corps of Engineers today, so I'm positive that. Maybe
2: one of the listeners can check and see what it went to on this one. Okay, right. Okay, if uh, if anybody can text us that information, we'd appreciate it. Okay, so
3: Bob, I know you. But let me go on and and give you a couple of statistics on this. the, the people in Nashville have a favorite saying that they only had 15 minutes of fame. You know, that the, some of the major news outlets only carried the Nashville flood for 15 minutes. And this was because not only was the disaster in the Gulf occupying the headlines, but right at the same time, we were focused on the event in Times Square in New York, where the terrorists uh attempted to set off a bomb Uh, okay and so both of those events overshadowed this but this is a major catastrophe over a billion dollars in damage were the early estimates and at least 30 people lost their lives in this flood so this was something that you know it's just major major
2: flood and we just got an answer it's about 52 feet and um you know, I think the big difference being that back in 1927 they probably had not built up things quite the same right, in the area. You know, yeah, there weren't any dams flood uh, control. A lot and of, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a lot different now.
1: you got the Tennessee Valley Authority all that other stuff yeah. that, you know, c- could impact this.
2: Absolutely. Bob, so. what sort of guidance
1: uh, was available to you and what sort of guidance documents did you follow in the work that you did down there?
3: Well, uh, I kind of, as you know, I was uh, very much a part of the uh, creation of the S-520 standard, the IRCRC S-520 standard, and chaired that committee for a time. And I pretty well followed that standard. I think that's a reasonable standard, and it it has some good guidance in it. But we also had to come up with a lot of other things for this. I got involved uh, early on in the week after the 4th. I started getting calls. I have contacts in the music industry and had talked to a couple of people and plus a contractor who's a good friend of mine, Ed Ciafani, who uh, owns uh, Fresh Air Solutions of Southwest Florida, which is a subsidiary of Fresh Air Global, uh, was calling me about it because he also has contacts in the music industry. And I decided to not knowing anything else, I put together a pallet of our products and sent up to one of my contacts up there saying, well, maybe this will help as a donation. And finally, I decided by the end of the week that they needed a lot more than that because the people up there were just, they just didn't know where to start. They were absolutely overwhelmed. So I uh, got on a plane and went up there and walked into uh, a nightmare Monday morning. Uh, there were a lot of restoration companies that had responded, but there were so many major, major things to do that the little people and some not-so-little people just didn't have any access to any experienced restoration contractors. Uh, the, uh, Of course, the Grand Old Opry, Opryland Hotel Complex... The Opryland Mills shopping complex, uh, the stadium, the symphony hall, uh, the basement of the Country Music Hall of Fame were all venues that were impacted. So the restoration contractors were spread pretty thin trying to get those pumped out, dried out, and start restoring what needed to be restored there and preventing further damage. So they're... they're, the other mass of people, private citizens and smaller businesses and others, just didn't have any, any guidance. Um, and so we walked in. One of the first places we went was a uh, uh, company called Soundcheck. Soundcheck's a fascinating operation. It is a service company to the music industry, especially the touring music industry. Uh, They've got about 100,000 square foot of storage where uh, music groups store their equipment, their instruments, their props, their costumes, and everything else between tours. They also have another 100,000 square foot of rehearsal hall space where a group will put together their act before they go on the road, try it out, rehearse and get ready to go and then they provide just a whole bunch of other services. Virtually all of your uh, manufacturers of guitars, uh, musical instruments, uh, sound equipment have stores within sound checks. So it's a major service to the music industry. It is in a very high and dry place, but the main part of it was under over five foot of water. Wow. So all of these, all of this equipment and instruments were totally involved, and uh, they were in an absolute panic as what to do. So we spent quite a bit of time in sound check. Uh, first of all, trying to just give them some basic procedures. When we first walked through, virtually nobody was using any kind of personal protective equipment. At that point, all of those things had been wet for six to eight days. So as you can well imagine, mold growth was well-advanced. Things were totally involved, and the odor of of mycotoxins in the air was just overwhelming. So we counseled people to get at a minimum N95 masks and where possible full-face respiratory protection, use gloves, get uh, appropriate clothing on to protect themselves. And then we started advising them, of course, initially on decontaminating. And uh, this uh, uh, decontamination on this project represented some real special challenges because the first thing we encountered when we walked into sign check was a uh, little sign like you could pick up at Home Depot that said, you know, say, beware of the dog, but where it said the dog, there was a piece of paper glued over it and it said snakes. Hmm. (laughs) Because there were a lot of water moccasins that got brought into the building and stayed there after the floodwaters receded. So that made it a real interesting remediation challenge.
2: I'll bet, I'll bet, Bob. Now, let's let's talk a little bit about some of these contents. I guess one of the first things that I'm interested in, I guess a lot of people would be, is the the guitars and some of the, musical instruments that um, I'm sure they have things stored there that are probably, in some people's eyes, priceless. Uh, what's the first thing you do when you're trying to figure out how you salvage a, a very well, old guitar? We, we set
3: up a we set up a four-stage recovery protocol. First of all was decontaminate. Take a, a broad-spectrum disinfectant and... Uh, lightly missed everything to knock down any pathogens that might be there because we're dealing with with Class three water, black water. Uh, We had to assume that there could be sewage, there could be anything in it. And uh, then uh, we wanted to prevent further damage, to segregate the stuff so that we would stop deterioration and then triage what we had. You know, there was stuff that obviously was gone. There was nothing that could be done. There was stuff that a little bit of work could probably bring it back, and then there was stuff that would take more intensive restoration. So we kind of separated it out and counseled people in how to evaluate that and start separating it. As you pointed out, the big frustration we had was some of the things that were damaged the worst were things that were absolutely irreplaceable and no value could be put on it. I mean uh, Hank Williams Jr., a guitar that he started out with, uh, how do you put a value on that? Mm-hmm. Now in, in very real value, in, in going to a store, there were instruments there that were worth fifteen to $25,000. Hmm. Uh, high-end Gibson and, and Fender guitars And other instruments, so there were some that were just, in replacement, were quite expensive. But then they're the ones that had the tremendous sentimental value that couldn't be replaced. And something interesting happened to these instruments. not interesting, it's kind of saddened. Uh, When the water hit many of the instruments, uh, of course the strings were in tension, Nobody had taken the tension off the strings, so you had tension between the body of the instrument and the neck. And then you have in a guitar a torsion bar that goes down the neck that bows the neck out so the strings hold off the frets. And those torsion bars, of course, were set like they were supposed to be. Well, they put a tension on it, so when the water hit that joint between the body and the uh, arm of the guitar, it snapped off so we saw countless guitars sitting there with the neck and the body separated and i was shown one bass that was valued at forty thousand dollars and it was in two pieces and that was tragic so one of the things that many of them had done and we counseled the rest of them to do was go in and take wire cutters and cut all the strings so you could take the tension off of that in addition uh we hadn't cut all the drum heads out because uh, a lot of the drum heads are hydrophobic or hydrophilic and and soaked up the water. And then as they dried out, they shrunk and they would distort the actual body of the drum. So if we cut that head out, that would stop that and prevent further damage. And we kind of developed other things on the fly because I don't, I'm not aware of a book of of. How do you salvage uh, musical instruments, equipment, speakers, and all this other stuff? It, it was it was a bit overwhelming. Uh, uh, walked in and to see uh, a dozen Hammond organs lined up, torn apart with all the guts out drying, and the Leslie speaker cabinets that go along with them all sitting there, and it just it just the impact is indescribable uh, of seeing all that. And literally I saw, uh, hundreds and hundreds of guitars. It just, uh, uh, one of these groups will easily carry a couple dozen guitars, even a small group on the road with them. It's just a variety to support their performance.
2: I would imagine there's a lot of, um, merchandise as well, Bob. How, how did you handle that? Um, I guess they sell clothing, they sell CDs, they they yeah. store tapes there. Um can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: There were about there were three categories of things. There were there were the paper goods. There's a lot of posters and things like that that they sell and those were just trash. They they there was no way to recover those. Uh there were a lot of there's a lot of clothing merchandise. Um uh, uh the famous Hank Williams Jr. uh shirt that says uh uh, uh, leave me my gun, leave me my everything else, and, and take your change. <laughs> uh, there were hundreds of those, and they made a decision to not try to have them laundered. They they made a decision to destroy them. I think most groups decided that because, as you well know, to recover textiles is something that that is is not certain. You're not certain that you can decontaminate them. And they made the decision that they just didn't want to deal with the uh, with the liability. Uh, also, the CDs generally they threw them away. Now this is was unfortunate. Uh, uh, I picked up as souvenirs out of the bone pile, a bunch of CDs, and, and they were perfect shape. They were completely undamaged because they're wrapped in a plastic wrapper that kept them uh, uh, away. kept the water out of the actual CD. Now the uh, aesthetically they weren't acceptable for sale and they determined that the labor to wash them off would exceed any value they got out of them. So they they most of the groups I think destroyed those. The one category that there were a couple of categories that we had to figure out how to save. One is a lot of these groups, when they're touring, they carry their personnel records with them, all their records. Their financial records, their personnel records, which surprised me. I figured it would be back in an office somewhere. No, it was in the road boxes. They had filing cabinets in the road boxes. And trying to figure out how to dry all those out, we were able to get a a freezer truck in, and they were in the process of freeze-drying a lot of those records for the groups, The other thing that was really tragic was the master tapes. Of course, when somebody records a song, they make a a master tape. And in today's technology, they use very, very wide tapes that carry 32 to 64 tracks so that every single sound in in the group is captured and can be remixed at a later date and the album reissued. Well, there were piles and piles and piles of those tapes that go back uh, years and the historical legacy of that is just incalculable, and again, we were attempting when I left to get those freeze dried uh, to see if they could be recovered, watch. and and at least some of them will be recovered, but a lot of them will be lost, and that that'll be lost forever.
1: Cliff, well, um, I guess Bob, did you work with any conservators or any? People that had you know specific expertise in uh, you know in dealing with the guitars. Did you see any uh, unique restoration technologies uh, demonstrated there that might be uh, of use to our listeners?
3: Yeah, there, there's uh, there's a company called Ed Beaver Guitars who uh, are are they uh, work with both Fender and 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 uh, uh, Dexter i'm I'm blowing it, but uh uh they work a lot with fender and uh they were they had set up a shop in the new location soundcheck went out and leased additional warehouses and was in the process of moving all the things to the new warehouses and uh several of these companies that work within soundcheck and lease space there had set up temporary shops and Ed beaver's organization was one of them and they we were trading ideas. they had no idea how to decontaminate the instruments. they had no idea how to uh, inhibit future growth, and we counseled on that and helped them with some simple procedures. The other thing that we saw and we 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 changed was the first thing that they did was went out and and rented or purchased or got a lot of dryers. They had an awful lot of of dehumidifying capacity in there. And they were actually drying things out too quickly. Uh, the, and, and this is something that I learned a number of years ago. I was uh, chairman of the group in Ashray that uh, produced the uh, uh, handbook chapter on museums, libraries, and archives and got a real education on preserving things. And I found that that experience was very, very helpful that week because uh, there's there's a lot of data about how you you keep things for a long period of time, both paper, textiles, wooden things, and everything else. And one of the things you learn real quickly is you want to change the humidity state of a wooden object very, very slowly because if you... You, we couldn't help the fact that they got wet real fast, which was a disaster, and that's what led to a lot of the uh, the, the bodies breaking apart and a lot of delaminating in the uh, acoustical, uh, the hollow-body acoustical guitars. Uh, so, you know, we had no control over that. They got wet fast, and that caused a certain amount of damage. But what we wanted to do was slow down the process of drying out again and so we built uh out of poly and and framing several controlled drying rooms where we brought in uh, desiccant and and uh and uh, salts to control the level of humidity in there rather than bringing it down real fast we brought it down very gradually and we think we we Prevented a lot of splitting that might have taken place otherwise, because especially the solid body electric guitars uh, you were really at risk for the actual wood just splitting apart. Okay. but it was it was really refreshing to see some of the miracles that the people in Ed Beaver's organization were able to do in starting to bring some of these back.
2: Well, you had people coming in from, I guess, all the major, uh, what is it, Fender and Gibson. I'm not a a music uh, guy. I guess you had people coming in from all those organizations doing what they could to try and salvage as much
3: as they could. Exactly. Plus, the organizations themselves were hit very hard. Uh, uh, Roland Sound, which is a major manufacturer of, bass guitars and the uh, amplifiers and speakers that support them, plus other uh, electronic equipment, uh, they had a presence in the sound check place. And there were just case after case after case of brand new amplifiers that had never been opened and obviously were tremendously damaged. And so we worked with them. I guess the the one thing that, uh, that really... Uh, got us was several of these groups were scheduled to be out on the road right away. And so they had their whole show packaged up and stored in this location with the idea that in a couple of weeks they would load it into the semi-trailers and take off. And for instance, a very large show like Kenny Chesney's show is a good example. We worked with the people that his, his road show people. Uh, he runs about 18 semi-trailers to carry his show from city to city. So there's a tremendous amount of equipment and everything else. And they were due out on, out on the road right now, the 1st of June. Hmm. And so they were scrambling to uh, salvage what they could and then figure out how to get replacements for it. And, of course, the suppliers to them a lot of their inventory was included in the mess. So they they were short of supply. Hmm. And uh, uh, the, uh, several groups postponed their tours or canceled them because they just couldn't get it together. All right. And you got to remember that a lot of these people weren't insured. Uh, the groups that were currently touring tended to have insurance because they had a coverage called All Perils. So they were covered. But the groups that were in between tours and were just storing equipment there, by and large, had no coverage.
2: Wow. That's a, that's a true disaster there for them. Um, Bob, let's, uh, we've got to go to our halftime here, and uh, we've got Tom Scarlett from IE Connections What's News. And we'll bring you back for the second half and talk a little more on this, and then we've got a couple other subjects. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org.
1: Grey Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com.
2: ProRestore, for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products, remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com.
1: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at Legends-Enviro.com.
2: And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at IEconnections.com.
1: Drys Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Drys is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at DRI EAZ.com.
2: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop, at JONDON.com. Clean Facts
1: and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
0: I just love
3: your office. A newspaper man has to have a good story. Writing just news is so factually boring. I get assignments that any could do. I am the scapegoat for all of the group. I'm mostly a figure they laugh at, but then
2: I'll be a leader of men. Good day, Tom Scarlett. We have you on the line. Hello. Hello, Tom. Welcome to IAQ Radio. Thanks for subbing for uh, Glenn Feldman today. What's news?
0: I've been following uh, a number of different things for the uh, newspaper. as you know, uh, Governor Christ down in Florida um, signed that bill that um, changes the you know the certification system for mold remediators down there. Um, under the old system, there was some concern that um, about grandfathering of folks that have been working in this business for years and you know would they have to go through all this training again and get these certifications again and the uh, the new bill um, provides a sort of a grandfathering method so that if you've been working as a mold remediator, for years and you can show a certain number of hours of uh, work in the field you don't have to go through jump through all the hoops that uh you know a new a new applicant for the license would have to do
2: you know i'm going to uh just cut in for just a minute tom because we're we're working with uh representative workman's office on getting some answers to questions that have come up since that bill was signed i have not gotten those answers yet but uh what I can do is uh, let listeners know we're trying to get him back on for a short period next week, and uh, we'll get some more answers on on what's going on with respect to um, the grandfathering issue. There's still there's still a little bit of uh, confusion about, for instance, what is a proctored exam, what is a nationally or state recognized organization, etc. cetera, will uh, and you know whether or not different types of training other than just strictly mold remediation count toward your 32 or 60 hours or whatever it may be. So we'll work on that again next week. Uh, go ahead, Tom. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, I think anybody who it, – it, there are still some things about the law that aren't clear, and I would, I would advise people to, to visit the Florida Department of Business and Professional Regulation also, um, see if they have any news about it. Um, they might publish some, I don't know, some regulations or something trying to clarify things in the statute. But uh, the governor did sign the law, and so uh, the new system should be uh, going into effect. All right. What's next? Also, there was uh very interesting uh happenings in the United States Senate actually. I uh you know EPA came out with the um new rule about lead paint and um the uh <coughs> you know the mandated training for uh, small contractors uh, or for contractors generally working with lead paint and they had training about how to do this safely. And it was a lot of concern. I know the National Association of Home Builders asked EPA to to delay the rule because they felt contractors hadn't had enough time to to get the training. And in some of the more rural states, maybe they weren't even able to get the training. But EPA didn't go for that. But then um, apparently the industry took its arguments to the U.S. Senate, and the Senate attached an amendment to a supplemental funding bill that essentially forces a delay in the implementation of this rule. Um, it sparked a debate on the floor of the Senate about this, and the uh, 60 senators wound up voting for the, um, for the amendment. Now, that's not the end of the process, because we need to see what the House of Representatives does, and, you know, it's not law yet. But it is, it is true that 60 senators voted for this amendment that would delay, you know, up until this point, it looked like the EPA rule was that this was the end of the, you know, that EPA had approved it, and it was final and all that, but 60 senators have voted to delay the regulation.
2: So we'll uh, we'll follow up on that in the future as well and let people know how that comes out. But uh, it looks like uh, it's still in effect for now, but uh, there may be a delay, and I believe they were talking about uh, by, by September you would still have to be trained.
0: I believe that's right,
2: yeah. Okay. And w- did you have one more? Yeah, there were a couple
0: of uh, more local stories. I didn't really uh, put these two together until I spoke to you the other day, but there was a um, – there's a big settlement out of Philadelphia. The Philadelphia Housing Agency there had to pay over $9 million because of, uh, a little girl apparently suffered severe brain damage due to uh, severe mold that was in the family's apartment. So that was a big settlement that Philadelphia had to pay out. And meanwhile, up in New York, they're considering a bill. The New York City Council is looking at a bill that would crack down on landlords that don't act. Uh, swiftly to address these indoor environmental problems. It would impose pretty severe penalties on landlords who who allowed mold and other things, you know, uh, vermin infestation and whatnot. But mold is on the list of uh, these things that uh, they are going to crack down on landlords that don't clean up the premises. And it, it may be that the folks in New York saw this big settlement out of Philadelphia and said, hey, wait a minute, we're going to get hit with these big damage awards if we don't uh, take some action here. So that's a bill that's pending in the, in the New York City Council and all keep an eye
2: on that for uh you know future coverage in the newspaper okay and one did you have one more um that was uh that
0: was it actually okay
2: uh, i think that last one folks uh we're going to keep a close eye on that uh that settlement on um with the philadelphia housing authority nine million dollars The little girl actually i believe she had an asthma attack and then as the result of uh Not getting to the hospital in time and whatever other problems now she's got some permanent damage and that was quite a settlement in the uh, In the uh, mold world I guess so we'll see if that uh, gets some other housing authorities starting to uh, Be a little more cautious on these issues and like like Tom said New York's just put something into place that uh, May or may not be finalized, but we'll find out as time goes on we'll follow up and we'll bring Tom and or Glenn back to help us out Thanks again, Tom. We always appreciate you joining us. Thank you. All right, let's move out. back to Bob Baker and then uh, Dr. Dieter. We're going to bring you in on the uh, round up here, but uh, I know Cliff, the Z-Man, the disaster restoration guy. He he's got a couple disaster yeah. questions. Yeah, I've for got Bob. a couple
1: disaster ones. I guess, Bob, what about corrosion? Did you see much corrosion, and did you use any, uh, you know, special techniques or procedures
3: to prevent corrosion? Uh there was obviously a lot of corrosion, and uh, we didn't have anything we don't have anything in our line, so I didn't have anything there at hand. Uh, one of the other suppliers that we were working with came in with a uh, product that uh, uh, a organic based product which was uh, allegedly would would repel water and chase water out. Uh, WD-40 is a well-known product that does that, but WD-40 isn't suitable for use on electronic equipment because it tends to be conductive, and so it defeats its purpose. And Allegedly, this stuff was uh, able to push the water out and, and get it out of the electronics without leaving a conductive film behind. And it appeared at the early stage to be pretty effective in, in providing some some help. I'm sorry I didn't get the, the name of the product, but uh, I'm certainly going to look into that some more. Um, the big thing that I'm concerned about is what's going to happen down the road. Because, because there weren't enough, quote, experts available, people were, were kind of inventing what they were doing and doing what, May have seemed well to them, but for those of us that have been around the industry know can lead to some problems down the road. And I think a good example is a nightclub called Cadillac Ranch, which is right on Broadway in downtown Nashville. Now, they didn't have water in the nightclub, they had it in the basement. So they were doing a lot of, uh, uh, restoration down in the basement. They didn't have a experienced contractor down there. The owner of the club was trying to do it with his own employees, and we found several things. First of all, they weren't using personal protective equipment, and we corrected that immediately, but the route they were taking, they, they had put the dumpster out in the street in front of the club, and so they were bringing things up the stairs through the club and out into it, and we pointed out to him that they were carrying that contamination and dropping it all throughout the club and that he was building himself a major decontamination requirement for that. And so we helped him figure out a route to get the materials out of there that would cause the least contamination spread. And then got somebody in there to uh, treat the areas where they had gone through and get those cleaned up because his major part of his business was, was unimpacted by the flood, but was at serious risk of impaction down the road because mold spores and, and fungal particles had been spread throughout it. And I can imagine that repeated over literally thousands of times as people, without thinking, were just concentrated on getting the damaged stuff out and not thinking about what they were doing to the rest of their facility. And I think that's gonna, that's gonna haunt uh, the whole area for a long time to come.
2: Bob, I, you know we've talked a lot about the um, the music area. Um, what what kind of uh, issues are you seeing, or, or do you are you concerned about with respect to the residential areas surrounding Nashville? And are there a lot of residential areas that were affected by this flooding?
3: Yes, there were there there. Uh, I heard anecdotal stories about a lot of people that just walked away from their homes. There was so much damage, that, and they were so overwhelmed that they just uh, made a decision to take out personal bankruptcy and start all over again. They didn't have the insurance coverage. They didn't have flood coverage. They, they just didn't know what to do with it. Others, uh, one of the beautiful things that I saw was nashville although it's a large city in many ways is really a real small town in terms of the way people live there virtually everybody in that town turned to i mean neighbors were helping neighbors everybody was helping everybody else they were uh, the spirit was marvelous i i just what was couldn't help but being so impressed by how loving and how caring everybody was the The artists in the music industry uh, already have several benefits planned. Uh, They were very generous in their contributions to their neighbors, and so there just a lot of wonderful people came out of the woodwork. Uh, That's real fortunate because there wasn't the kind of outside help that you usually see in a disaster. The, The companies came in because they were mobilized, but the usual volunteer cadre that comes in on something like that is just unaware. So they they hadn't yet shown up. Hopefully that will happen down the road. Uh, but there, there's going to be a lot of people that that for a long time are putting their lives back together, and a lot of them that really are going to have a hard time putting their lives together. We've
2: got a, a text question, Bob, and I think it's a, an important point to bring up, whether whether you know the answer or not. Um, the question is Did the Tennessee Department of Environment uh, certify asbestos and lead removals in, in facilities like churches and schools? Do you know if the Department of Environment was out in force or the Public Health Department and what they were doing about hazardous materials?
3: Yes, the Public Health Department was out. Uh, in all the locations I was in, I saw uh, informative flyers posted. I was impressed by how quickly they had responded and gotten the word out obviously like everybody else they were overwhelmed i mean they 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 had not they could not have been prepared for that level of of tragedy but at the same time they had assembled a lot of information they had, had obviously gotten it out to everybody uh you saw these informative bulletins and flyers posted around and a lot of people using the procedures. I guess the one area where I was kind of surprised was uh for some reason the need to use personal protective equipment, respiratory protection had not been communicated. But a lot of other things had been and and that was very appropriate. So that that was out there. Uh, uh the, I think given the challenge that the local agencies faced, their response was was surprisingly good.
2: Bob, we've got uh, about ten minutes left here, and I, I want to go to the roundup in about five. But before we do, I, there's a couple other issues I've been I've been wanting to talk to you about, and, and we ran out of time the last two shows. So I want to try and get to to two issues. Well, well, first, if you wouldn't mind, could you comment? Uh, you're in Florida. You've got a new licensing law in Florida. Uh, what are your thoughts on this licensing law?
3: Well, uh, at the risk of being uncharitable toward the st- Florida legislature, they screwed up. Uh, I was involved in the very early stages of this when they were proposing the law, and and the law came in, let's face it, as a knee-jerk reaction to what happened in Texas. Uh, the Texas law was passed, and Florida said, oh my gosh, we ought to do something. Now, there, there wasn't the kind of history of, of disasters in Florida that there were in Texas that brought that law on. Uh, It just really was a reaction to the, and, and in my opinion, an overreaction to the Texas law. At the time that the law was passed, Florida was in deep financial trouble, as most states are right now. And Florida was already there. The Department of Professional Regulation was severely underfunded. And when we were in the early hearings on this and, and looking at it, the people in the the department were very open about we don't have any idea how we're going to write the regulations around this law, how we're going to implement it, because we just don't have the resources, and the government, the the legislature isn't going to give them to us. So we went into a situation where they they didn't write the regulations until very late because they didn't have the resources to. So as the law reached the point where implementation time came along, the, many of the things were not well thought out. Perfect example, the grandfathering issue. So my feeling all along was that the law should have been repealed before it became effective. That didn't happen, and instead, in my opinion again, what happened was that the legislature has now passed a Band-Aid law this supposed fix for the grandfathering problem. And I think history will reveal that it truly is a Band-Aid, and it really isn't very satisfactory. And so we're going into a new regulatory process that I think invites abuse and is going to end up hurting more people than it helps. And, And I'll personalize it. I, I, I think that that uh, I am probably fairly well qualified to be a investigator, and if I wanted to a remediator, because of my experience, my knowledge, and everything else, I think I would have a difficult time meeting the grandfathering provisions. And uh, I wonder how many others that are extremely well-qualified, will not be practicing in Florida. Well,
2: I thought we'd get that on the table, Bob, and I appreciate your openness on it. Now, there's another thing that, that has always been something I've wanted to ask you about. You're very active in ASHRAE, and I know you've been active in a lot of ASHRAE standards, but one that has always been uh, of interest to me is air quality and commercial aircraft, Bob. I guess just in general, how is air quality in commercial aircraft? I mean, Cliff and I uh, spend a good bit of time in the air. Uh, you Not so much man. anymore, Cliff, but uh, I'm still there. And, Bob, and I know you spend a lot. So I'm assuming it's not too bad, but maybe I'm wrong.
3: When it's on the ground, it's lousy. When it's in the air, it's great. Uh, okay. <laughs> that, that's kind of the bottom line. Uh, this is a very interesting standard. It's standard 161, and it's uh, commercial aircraft cabin air quality. Uh, air quality within commercial aircraft. I just looked at the copy of the standard on my bookshelf. Uh, I'm I'm part of my actuary duties are to be on the standards project liaison subcommittee of standards, and I'm responsible for several interesting standards, uh, 62.1 and 62.2, which are the ventilation standards for commercial buildings and residential buildings, standard 161, which is the commercial aircraft cabin air quality standard, and guideline 10, which is a new guideline that is up for consideration for publication. We'll be looking at it in in the meeting in Albuquerque coming up at the end of this month. And I think that's going to be a good addition to the literature in the indoor air quality world. But, uh, yeah, 161 is a fascinating standard. They've done a lot of good work. In fact, the chair of that committee, uh, uh, who's a professor at Kansas State University, has a Boeing aircraft cabin in his laboratory that was donated by Boeing that he does his research in.
2: So I'm okay once I'm in the air, huh?
3: Once you're in the air, you're great. On the ground. You've got a lot of hydrocarbons, you've got a lot of humidity, you've got a lot of uh, particulates.
2: What, what kind of filtration do we get when we're up in the air? Uh,
3: the, and That's an interesting thing. Probably the only risk when you're in the air is uh, so occasionally, they say once in every thousand hours or something like that, there's a release of, of burnt oil, pyrolyzed oil. Off the engine. The air conditioning system in the plane gets its power off of engine bleed air from the uh, jet, en- jet engines. Uh, and every once in a while, you'll get a little bit of lubricating oil that escapes into that system. And uh, mainly, it gets released in the cockpit by, because of the way the system's designed. So it's not much of a risk for passengers, but the crews are quite concerned about that issue. And the airplane manufacturers uh, in the new Boeing Dreamliner, the uh, the air conditioning is no longer dependent on engine bleed. They've hmm. redesigned the system so it's an independent system. And that was the probably the only weak point in the thing. But you have HEPA filtration of all the air on airplanes. It's extremely clean air. And uh, the way the flow goes, uh, if... If somebody's sitting in front of you or behind you and they have a communicable disease, you're unlikely to be exposed to it. Uh, The only exposure risk is somebody sitting next to you. Hmm. The way the air flows is that you get that air. The rest of the air you get is very well filtered and very clean.
2: Excellent. Well, that's good to know. I won't... But a little dry. Uh, yeah, a little dry. That's okay. I'll take dry as long as it doesn't have a bunch of uh, flu virus and all that other stuff in it. Well, listen, Bob, let's go to our roundup. We'll go around. We've got to bring Dr. Dieter in first, and then uh, Cliff and I can ask one last question, and we'll, we'll wrap things up.
0: Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high.
2: Good day, Dieter, Dr. Dietrich Wow, our technical director. we have you on the line?
4: Yeah, I don't have much to add to cleaning up uh, expensive instruments.
2: I know you like expensive uh, I don't know instruments. anything about it,
4: uh, but I'm glad I was a bass player. When I played a bass, we had an upright bass. Fender just came in, so if I were in a flood and on a Base, I would last a little bit longer than somebody with a violin or something like that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and now you know to cut the strings, right?
4: Uh, well, that's right. Um, uh, interesting thing, I've been saying that for years because I did, oh God, 20 years ago, I studied, I worked with, I think it was United Airlines, and it doesn't really matter. We looked at um, uh, air quality in cabins that had, at the time originally had something to do with the fact that all airplanes that came from out of state into California had to be fumigated to prevent you know, bugs from getting into the agricultural uh, area in, uh, in California. Hmm. But I hear that so often that people are complaining, or not complaining, they say, oh, this, this air is terrible over in here. If you're at 35,000 feet, yeah, you've got to need to uh, heat the air a little bit. I insist on it because it's 50, minus 50 degrees outside. But there is no air pollution up there unless you fly over I- uh, Iceland right now, over <coughs> the Vesuvius there. <laughs> but, uh, and I know how it is heated. And there is a bypass. And by and large, there's virtually nothing to write home about. The um, the uh, the air changes per hour are absolutely incredible, and uh, it makes a heck of a lot of sense there. If you are thirty-five thousand feet, there is a hell of a lot of clean air around you, so you don't really have to do anything uh, over there. Uh, is it okay to have a HEPA filter? Yeah, if you get at lower altitudes, that's fine. At thirty-five thousand feet, I don't think you find a heck of a lot of air pollution. Of any kind, whether it's particulate uh, or you know VOCs. Now, if something if something goes wrong with the engine and puts that one into the cabin, I don't know, but that certainly would be a a, a concern. But uh, other than that, you know, I uh, I'm glad we touched on that, and um, I, I I think there are more important places on this earth where we should look for. Air conditioning problems. Let's call it that, or, or exposure problems due to VOCs or or particulate matter. I think, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I think uh, there are better places uh, to look than uh, at uh, an aircraft that flies from New York to Los Angeles. All right.
2: Well, Dieter, thanks. We always appreciate you joining us. And uh, let's go over to the Z-Man. Cliff, I think you had one last question. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Uh, Bob, uh, this this is more
1: of an observation. I was wondering whether or not um, your observation in looking at some of these basements that were underwater, whether or not you found that building materials beneath the high water mark, so they were exposed to water, were somewhat more resistant to fungal growth than adjacent materials?
3: Uh, yeah, we, we saw a lot of surface fungal growth. Uh, we didn't see, we, we saw, obviously, the sheetrock was a total loss where it had been underwater. Uh, the structural materials themselves, uh, I felt everything we saw was fully salvageable. Uh, Of course, we'd had growth of six to eight days at most, Uh, and uh, so it wasn't a long time down the road where you had things that uh, growth had been persistent enough that there were structural issues, and uh, I didn't see anything that I didn't feel was salvageable.
2: Bob, before we go, I just wanted to make sure you get a chance to add anything that we may have missed or if you want to uh, add one more key point for our listeners on on the uh, lessons you learned while you were in Tennessee.
3: Uh, no, one one thing that I would like to bring up is uh, call everybody's attention to the new ASHRAE standard. ASHRAE Green Building Council Illuminating Society of America number of organizations participated in creating standard 189, uh, high-performance building design. I think that's going to be a very important new standard. Uh, uh, Kent Peterson, the former president of ASHRAE, uh, took over that committee when it was floundering about a year and a half ago and did a magnificent job of bringing it in and getting consensus on it and, and driving the standard out. It was published earlier this year. I urge people to look at it. It's going to be have a big impact on future building design.
2: I appreciate that, Bob. We did have um, Dr. Andrew Pursley on uh, last week, or well before our break, and uh, we talked. We got into a little bit on uh, 189, and we had Hal Levin on, who also was um, on that committee, and I believe he'll be coming back. So we'll be going into that in more detail. Cliff?
1: Well, I just want you to know, Joe, that you are a little late today, and while you were a little late, IAQ Radio did its part. Uh, we made a donation today to uh, flood relief down in Nashville, so you'll see it on your credit card. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, hey, you know, and I'd like to urge anybody out there that can help out a little bit because I think Bob made a great point, and that's why we did this show. Um other events kind of overshadowed the disaster that occurred in the Nashville area, and those people aren't um, you know, getting the type of help that you might find after some other situations that occur, and certainly I haven't heard them complaining about it, but I'm certainly sure they could use some help, and uh, we'll help out any way we can here, especially by getting the word out. Well, first, I want to thank today's guest, Mr. Bob Baker, for joining us. Bob, we always appreciate having you on. Look forward to talking to you again. Um, Next week, we're going to have Dr. Richard Corsi from the University of Texas as our guest. Before I go, I want to thank uh, my co-host, the Z-Man. It's uh, fun working with you, Jeff. Cliff Slotnick, of course, environmental Annie Koalecki, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, Tom Scarlett filling in for Glenn Fellman. But most importantly, uh, you, our growing group of loyal listeners, thank you all. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.